Our title today is, Are You Old School? Yes. Let's have prayer. I just sit down. <clears throat> have you heard that expression before, guys? Have you used that expression before? I mean, this is just so old school. And we use it for all kinds of things, to talk about something that's old, it's tired, it's antiquated, it's been replaced with something far better. And so I have a picture of this cabin. I actually really like this cabin, but I imagine it's quite old school. I don't think there's probably uh, running water. You probably have to go out into those woods to do a variety of things. Um, There's other ways that we're old school. You know, looking at technology, you all will not remember any of this, but some of the rest of us do this rotary telephone that was attached to the wall. And if you had to do a lot of things in your kitchen and you had a big kitchen, you got the longest cord possible so you could walk all the way to here and get something while you're cooking and come back. And I'm still on the phone. How wonderful is this? Look how long my cord is. And as kids, you'd run through it and wah, 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 hey, and you're pulling it out. You don't even know any of those things because it's old school. Do you see this cell phone up here? That's been said to be the first cell phone. It's a Motorola, oftentimes referred to as the brick, because it was about the size of a brick. You could fit it in your pocket if you had a really big overall pocket, and it was quite enormous, but we thought that was really cool because there was no cord. Down here at the bottom, another old school device, the first laptop computer. Do you see the screen? What would you use that for? I don't even know. Are you typing in a few bomb codes somewhere? I don't know. But I can't imagine delivering my sermon off of that. How about old school cars? Now these are some pretty sweet old school cars. That one on the top left, it's called a Subaru Brat. Why is it called a Brat? Because it doesn't want to be a car or a truck? I don't know. This reminds me of a car we grew up in in Fresno, California. It was a Dodge Dart. It was avocado green with autocavo green. I can't even say the word now. (laughs) With green seats that I remember would get hot. It wasn't leather. No, no, no. It was, was it vinyl? Vinyl seats. And I remember in the summertime in Fresno, California, we'd get in and it would be hot and so it hurt our skin and you couldn't have shorts on in the summertime. In the winter, it was freezing cold. That's old school. How about hair? Oh, we're not getting to hair yet. Houses. (laughs) Hair is coming. Here are some old school houses. Of course, you can get older school than that, like our first slide. These are some of them from the 70s. Look at some of these kitchens. In fact, I came across them that look very much like our kitchen downstairs until recently. But look at this bright green, bright yellow. I mean, this is incredible. Even the floors and the wallpaper. Yes, wallpaper. They say it's coming back. I don't know. Oh, now the hair. (laughs) I tell you what, I, I, I really don't even know what to say other than this is very old school. My favorite hairstyle for for men back in the 80s this or was it said I don't know the mullet yeah Uh uh-huh they say business in the front party in the back that's the mullet I should have I've missed an opportunity here it's probably for the better there's a picture of my family when I was a kid about y'all's age that was before I said y'all we were still from California 
My hair was not of my own doing. It was round. It was like a chili bowl cut, but it had this rounded edge all the way around. Was that natural? No. How did that, how was that accomplished? Mom would take her curling iron. Now time out right here. Young man, curling iron. Young man, curling iron. Not a good idea. And she would, I remember on Sabbath mornings, and she'd try and make this nice curl and brush it all nice. I hate it. It went down over my ears on either side. And then if I, sh- if, if I moved too, too much, if I got, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? Fidget. Yeah, if I got too fidgety, I, then the thing would burn my forehead. Ah! Old school. Didn't like it. Antiquated. All right, now we have some great pictures of our Pathfinder Club here. Look at them. There's a, they're at Lake Junaluska. They're having special services here and so on. And here is uh, our Adventure Club and some of the adventures they went on this past year. But you do realize, maybe you don't realize, that Pathfinders and Adventures is kind of old. I should do it this way. Kind of old school. Did you know that? It's been around a lot longer than you all have. And I think I can safely say, than you all have. Let's look at some of the history here. I mean, talk about old school, first of all, though. We're going to go out into the wilderness, and we're going to put up a tent. When we have to use a restroom, we're going to, there is no restroom, so we're going to go out and we're going to dig a hole, and we're going to get water from the creek, and we're going to do all these, we're going to cook off of a fire sometimes. I hate to say it, guys, but that's a little bit old school, isn't it? Right? What are you laughing for? Because of the picture of you in the tent? <laughs> Pathfinder honors. How to identify flowers, trees, birds. How to light a fire. Backpacking, cooking, first aid, auto mechanics, Bible memorization. hate to say this is all old school. There is not an honor in video games that I'm aware of. There's no ba- badge for whoever gets the most likes on social media. There's not a couch potato honor. Nor one for potato chips. Nor is there one for hours logged watching TV or movies. No, Pathfinders and Adventures is old school. It's a time to have actual face-to-face conversations, to build things using your hands, to study God's Word, to learn new life skills that better prepare you for the future, to go out into the wilderness and leave the media behind as we learn more about nature and exploring and God's creation. Yes, Pathfinders and Adventures is old school. In fact, even the roots are old school. Did you know that the early roots of Pathfinders goes back to the early, and I mean early, 1900s, over, hold on, over a hundred years ago? Close your mouth, Noah. Keep the morning watch. You said it today. Often questions are raised. What is meant by the statement in the Pathfinder Law that says, keep the morning watch? Did you know that the morning watch was a short daily devotional plan published for juniors and early teens that was first tried in the Central Union, now Mid-American Union, in 1907? It was so successful its very first year that the very next year it became part of the World Youth Curriculum. 
So keep the morning watch simply means to maintain habits of daily personal devotional reading. You already knew that, didn't you? Yeah, of course. But before there was a Pathfinder Club, there were these things called junior missionary volunteers. And there was little pins. Does anybody have one of those pins? J.M.V. In 1909, a small pamphlet was issued setting the foundations for organizing the first junior missionary volunteer society. Many of these societies were organized in our church schools, where on Wednesday morning in the church school, they would have their traditional meetings and they would challenge the juniors in a system called the Standard of Attainment that was introduced in 1915, which was the forerunner of the progressive classes that are the Pathfinder classes today consisted of of a set of requirements that covered Bible knowledge, church history, healthful practices, outreach activity. Sound familiar? 1915. Then Arthur W. Spaulding, also known as A.W. Spaulding, if we fast forward to 1919, just 100 years ago, A.W. Spaulding was living in Tennessee at the time, and he was a true mentor for youth and young people in his church. And so he organized a little club called Missionary Scouts. This wasn't Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. This was Missionary Scouts. And they went off oftentimes camping and were involved doing good deeds in the community. They even put together a pledge and a law to live by. And while this club eventually, when A.W. Spaulding moved on, the club kind of dwindled away, the pledge and the law very much was maintained. And with very few changes... That's what we have today. Harriet Holt, another aspect of Pathfinders, was introduced by her in 1922. She worked at the General Conference Youth Department, and she created levels of development. She called them friend, companion, and then there was a leadership track where they had comrade and master comrade. Sound a little bit like guide and master guide? How about the name? Well, there was There were several JMV groups and camping groups in various places, some in Michigan, some as far away as Australia. But in 1928, again, the same man, A.W. Spaulding, was part of another youth group in Southern California. And often A.W. Spaulding liked to tell his campers the adventure stories of an American early Western explorer known uh, known as a mountain man. His name was John Fremont. There should be a little tick over the E. And he carried the nickname Pathfinder. And the nickname in that club caught on, and so they began to call themselves the Pathfinder Club. Moving on a little bit more, in 1946, C. Lester Bond and his wife held the title of Junior Youth Director. Actually, this is from 1928 to 1946. And almost immediately... He introduced the first 16 merits, today known as honors, to the JMV clubs. So we have camping clubs, we have JMV clubs, and they're both kind of doing their own thing with aspects of what will end up being what we know today. But by 1946, all of these clubs doing their own thing, there was a mother that came to this man, John Hancock, the new youth director in the Southeastern California Conference. And she said, you know, summer camp has such a positive impact on my boys and on my kids. Why can't we just do those types of activities all year long? And so they started to combine this JMV groups and this 
Pathfinder camping group together into one. And this all started in the Riverside Church with the leadership of La Sierra ministerial student Francis Hutt as club director. He started a club of 15 boys and girls, not too big. But then John Hancock started to reproduce this in other places within the conference. And it went to Glendale, California. In fact, their club grew as large as 150 Pathfinders. And that was the name that they started working under. And by 1947, there were 11 other Pathfinder clubs in that conference. And he started putting together training manuals and how to begin a Pathfinder club in your area. He's the one that designed this Pathfinder logo that you see here next to him. Well, how about the song that we sang this morning? Well, around that time in 1949, Pathfinder's song was written by a pastor in Central California Conference, Henry Berg. He was a quiet man, as you maybe can devise from the picture. When asked to write a song, he properly protested that he was neither a musician nor a composer and dismissed the notion altogether. Yet on this particular Sabbath, he was going to preach at a church in the Monterey Peninsula, and he was thinking about the Pathfinders, and he thought, you know, they really do need a song, and so he started to jot down the words of the song that we sang this morning. And then it was after he preached on his way back home, he started entertaining some jingles that would go with the words of this poem that he just wrote. He wasn't sure if it was okay, so he sent it away to Wayne Hooper to edit it. He was more of a musician, and he wrote back, he says, it looks good, that's a good song. And so today we still sing the Pathfinder song, old school. In 1950, John Hancock was asked to be the general conference or to go to the general conference where he developed more books and training manuals. Eventually, NAD grabbed hold of this thing and went across the United States. It went into Puerto Rico and Mexico, Peru, as the GC adopted it. But how about this adventure club? Well, its first roots are in 1939 with some curriculum that was first used in our Adventist schools. Some of you may remember growing up in in our Adventist institutions being a busy bee or um, a sunbeam or a builder or helping hands. Anybody ever take part of that investiture? Yeah. Then in 1972, a club was formed in the Washington Conference called the Beavers. And they say that's the forerunner of the adventure club. There were different names. Some were called pre-pathfinders, some beavers, some adventure. And eventually they adopted the name adventure. And that was adopted in the World Church in 91, and that too has spread. All right, enough history. But as you can see, this thing has been around a little while, and much of what you're doing has been around a long while. And the the patches and the honors that you are doing, some of them your parents have done, even your grandparents have done. And now with the adventurers, we have little lambs, eager beavers, busy bees, sunbeams, builders, helping hands. And it serves as a feeder program to the Pathfinder Club. How big is Pathfinders today? Well... Five years ago at Oshkosh, we're told that 46,000 Pathfinders came together from around the world. That's a pretty big deal. You can go to their website today. Tickets are already gone. I imagine they've been gone for some time for the, the August event that will be hosted there this year. So yes, Pathfinders and Adventurers are both old school, but I think that's what makes them great. It's about sticking to the basics, about God, about building biblical character and values, learning about the God of nature, about helping your community. Yes, Pathfinders and Ventures is old school, and I believe that is a good thing. Our scripture reading today that was read to us, thank you, Nicholas, 
Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand in the ways and see and ask for which paths? Old paths. This world doesn't like old paths. We want something new, something improved, something updated. What's the latest version? But it says, no, stand and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. I think there's a fundamental principle there that is impacting and affecting people across the planet. And certainly in this country, we have forgotten the old ways. And you say, Pastor, you're just antiquated. Am I? Because I tell you, there's all kinds of new stuff that's come out that they say is helping us that I don't think is helping us. But sadly, you see the world respond to the old ways spoken of in Scripture. Oh, that's an old book. There's nothing relevant for me. That was written so long ago. What do they know about the human experience? And similarly, they responded to Jeremiah the same way. If we keep reading, it says, but they said, we'll not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. Wake up. But they said, we'll not listen. La, 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 la. Friends, it's hard in this day and age to stand up against the constant pull of our culture, isn't it? But I'm reminded of a person in history who lived in one of the most secular and godless times, but still, even at a young age, stood for the right. Now, I could come up with a couple individuals, and I've talked about many of those individuals before, but this one is one I don't believe I've talked about before. To get some context, though, of this story, before we talk about Josiah, I want to talk about Manasseh's reign and some of this context. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and we're going to look at the context. Unfortunately, the context is not so encouraging. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, beginning verse 1, we read, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But the next verse is not a good verse. Verse 2, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. All the surrounding nations did bad things. And now God's own people, under the leadership of his own king, is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 3, for he built the high places... What are the high places, places for pagan worship, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down? He raised up altars for the Baals. Oh, no. He made wooden images, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. These are the gods of the Assyrians. Verse 4, it only gets worse. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. What would you think of that? If we decided to just build a huge altar here and a big idol here, maybe something to bail over there, and we could bring incense and do all that stuff, and we'll do it right here. Man, oh man. Verse 5, and he built altars of all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he caused his sons to pass through fire. What is that talking about? I'm going to offer up my kids to sacrifice to the gods. Really? This is bad news, but it doesn't get any better. Later on in verse 6, it says he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, sorcery, consulted mediums, and spiritists. 
This is spiritualism at the highest level. He's bringing spiritualism into the church. He's sacrificing his own kids to these gods. Says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. In fact, we read in other accounts, this was to Asherah, the sensual Canaanite goddess. So add to everything else, sexual impurity of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen. These are the words of of the Lord now. In the house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is a remnant people, his chosen people. Out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, he says. But there's a condition. If you skip down in the middle of verse eight, it says, if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and ordinances by the hand of Moses. Did they follow God's law? No, that was old school. That was antiquated. We want to keep up with everyone else. We want to be like everyone else. They have so much more fun. And verse nine, says, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil. Now this is shocking, more evil than the nations which the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Remember how they were supposed to go in and take possession of the land and take it away from all these wicked people that had come in and did their idol worship and all the rest. And it says Manasseh did worse than all of them. Worse? And so if we skip through, eventually the Lord lets him fall into the hands of the Assyrians. It looks like he might die. And so then he has this big come to Jesus moment and he repents. He humbles himself. He tries to make reforms, but the people are too far gone. He's lost all credibility. And it says in verse 17, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places. And then later on, we find that Manasseh rested with his fathers, verse 20, and then his son Ammon reigned in his place. All right, Ammon, what are you going to do? Are you going to improve the situation? Are you going to lead the people back to God? It says Ammon was 22 years old, verse 21, when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Verse 23, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. And then verse 24, then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. That was his demise. So how is it looking for the people of God right now? Worshiping Baal and idols in the temple temple prostitution and sexual impurity, sacrificing their children to idols. You got it, buddy. Thumbs down. It's not looking good, is it? So after Ammon is murdered in his own home, they made his son Josiah king in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Anybody here eight years old? Almost. Nobody's eight That's too bad. Eight is a great age. You used to be? (laughs) We're in chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned. Oh, I had these other pictures. Let's move on here. Here we have Manasseh's reign. And I forgot some of this in Manasseh. It says, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. This is the account in 2 Kings. Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other of innocent blood. Patriarchs and Prophets says in 382, one of the first to fall was Isaiah, 
who was over half a century, had stood before Judah as the appointed messenger of God. Then she goes on to quote this verse. Others were tortured here in Hebrews 11, 36 and 37. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two, were tempted and were slain with the sword under God's king. And we finished this part with Manasseh and we talked about Ammon's reign and his wasn't any better. And so now we're here with Josiah. Okay, so we were there, he says in verse 2, And Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. Not his father Ammon, nor his grandfather Manasseh, but he walks in the paths of David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. So think with me for a minute of the godless culture, the secularism, the impurity, all this stuff swirling around, yet Josiah, at eight years old, he becomes king and he says, I'm going to follow after David. I'm going to follow his God. I'm not going to turn to the right. I'm not going to turn to the left. When he started making a stand at eight, he is a kid. You're right. Do you think people took him seriously? Ah, come on. He's trying to take us backwards. That's old school. Come on. But we keep reading verse three, for in the eighth year of his reign, so he was eight when he was on the throne. Now in the eighth year, so he'd be 16, right? Anybody here 16? Nobody here's alive this morning. I used to be. Tammy used to be. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the 12th year, so he's 20 now, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and in the incense altars, which were above, above them, he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images, he broke in pieces. That's a bold move. I mean, when Gideon did that, and he tore down some of the idols... In Judges, you remember that story? I think it's chapter 6. They say, where's your son? He needs to come out. We're going to kill him. I mean, we put our best material on all these images. They're made of gold and silver and bronze. And we've crafted them finally. And you're just going to destroy them and pulverize them at age 16 through age 20? This would not have been a popular message of this young upstart king. But he does it anyway. And the fact that he doesn't get taken out like his father gets taken out tells me there was a way in which he did it that those around him liked him. They may not have always agreed with him, but he must not have just been a tyrant and and saying, we're going to do it this way and do it that way. Otherwise, they would have taken him out too. But that doesn't happen. Some way, in a winsome way, but still in a commanding way, he said, look, guys, this is not okay. We need to return to the old paths. This is from Prophets and Kings. It says, Thus Josiah, from his earliest manhood, had endeavored to take advantage of his position as king to exalt the principles of God's holy law. Young people, you don't have to wait for anybody. You can do that now. From your earliest manhood and womanhood, as a child of eight and younger or older, It says he resolved to walk in the light of its counsels and also to do all in his power to acquaint his people with his teachings and to lead them, if possible, to cultivate reverence and love for the law of heaven. We need to get back to the old paths. So then we continue on in this story. And I'll just tell it to you quickly. You can go home and read it. 
but he's 26 years old now. It says in the 18th year of his reign, and he wants to fix up the house and repair God's house, it says in verse 8. And so they're gathering money, and they're going to deliver the money, and the people, the foremen that are doing some of the work, they're doing all this stuff and banging around, and guess what they happen to find? The law of God in the house of the Lord. And in fact, it says in verse 15, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Friends, has our culture and has our country lost the book of the law of the Lord? Has it been covered up by secular books? Sometimes by mystic books? Sometimes by magazines of any kind and every kind? Has the law of God been covered up by TV remotes and gaming consoles, by iPads and smartphones and social media? But it says they took the book and they read it to the king. And in verse 19, thus it happened when Josiah, the king, heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. And he says down here in verse 21, for great is the wrath of the Lord that poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Even after all the things he does, he says, we have sinned greatly. We need to reform. We need revival. We need reformation. And so what does the king do? Skip down to verse 29. Then the king, only 26 years old, the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the priests, the Levites, and all the people, great and small. Everyone come together, I have something to say. And he doesn't pass it off, notice, but it says, and he, the king, Josiah, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made, or we could say, he compelled all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to take a stand. And then verse 33, thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the countries that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. And all his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. Josiah, a young man, makes a covenant to the Lord to keep all, not just a few, not just some, not to be selective, not to pick and choose, to keep all his commandments with all his art, with all his soul, and he compelled others to follow. Young man, being bold for Jesus Christ and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow the law that he gave us through Moses. Some get the idea that he was a dictator. But look at this quote. It says, the royal reader was deeply affected, talking about when he read the the book and the law to his people. He was deeply affected, and he delivered his message with the pathos of a broken heart. And his hearers were profoundly moved. The intensity of feeling revealed in the countenance of the king, the solemnity of the message itself, the warning of judgments impending, all these had their effect, and many determined to join with the king in seeking forgiveness. It wasn't a dictator. It was a king with pathos, with tears in his voice. Who will make a covenant to follow the Lord? To keep all his commandments, 
with all their heart, with all their soul. And he's challenging them. He's compelling them. Friends, I believe God is calling us back to his law of liberty. You may have learned in your Sabbath school class the happiness rules. And it's in fact the case to consider the old paths so we can find rest for our souls. And what do the Ten Commandments say? I imagine you know them well. The first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's about priorities. It's not friends first or homework first. It's not even sleep first. Well, I didn't get to bed in time. No, putting God first. Number two, no carved images. Well, we don't worship images today, don't we? What about our phones? We wake up and we worship them first thing. We give it our attention throughout the day. It's the last thing we look at before we go to sleep. Is it substituting what should really be in its place? Number three, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I'll be cool if I use some curse words. Then people will think I'm serious, that I'm mad. Don't curse. But some of you might say, well, I don't do that. Well, good for you. I'm proud of you for not. But as a Christian, do we take his name in vain by not living up to the standard he calls us to sometimes? Whether it's at school or on the playground, whether it's locker room talk. What does the fourth commandment say? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? Oh, don't be so old school. God won't mind if I go out to eat today. You know, and while I'm out, I just happen to be there. I need to run in. I need to get something at Target just really quick. God won't mind if I listen to secular music. It was already in the restaurant. It was in Target. I really like that song. And you know what? There's that show I really want to watch that's on TV today. God's not going to mind. Maybe if I play a few video games, it's a rainy day. No, remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? Holy. holy. Set apart for a holy purpose. Make sure that it's different than every other day. How about the fifth? Honor your father and your mother. The only commandment with the promise that your days may be long. You might say, but my parents are lame. God says, honor them anyway. They're your parents. Number six, thou shalt not murder. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Have you slandered somebody's character with your words? Yeah. How about number seven? Thou shalt not commit what? Adultery. Friends, purity to God is a big deal. Sexuality is to be saved and reserved for your future husband or your future wife. And the devil is hitting our young people hard, I believe, in this area, harder than he ever has before. And he wants to say, oh, it's no big deal. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. Friends, nothing will cause you more problems in life than impurity. Pornography is highly accessible and highly addictive. Don't go there. Not once, not ever. How about number eight? Thou shalt not steal. It really comes down to just simply respecting the things of others, right? Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honesty is a big deal. And right now you're learning to be honest. There's sometimes that the parents ask you, did you do this? And you want to say, no, but you know that you did. But I'm encouraging you, don't lie. Tell the truth. You'll be better off. Besides, your parents already know anyway. Don't cheat in school. Not even just a little bit. Don't get in the habit of cheating because it's another form of lying. And if you lie now, you'll lie your entire life. You'll lie in high school. You'll lie in college. You'll lie to your spouse. And if people can't trust you, that can be rough. 
you know how dishonest? In fact, I would say probably 95%. That's a made-up statistic. But I would say a huge bulk of the social media is dishonest. This is my perfect life, my perfect vacation, my perfect relationship. But in real life, they're unhappy, they're miserable, they're getting divorced, there's yelling and screaming and all kinds of mess going on. But not online. It all looks good online. Be honest. And number 10, you shall not covet. Be satisfied. When we covet, we're unsatisfied, aren't we? And the marketing industry is constantly telling you, you're not satisfied. I'm not? No! You deserve better! You've worked hard! You need this! You have to have it! Everybody else has one! I don't know that we've ever had a society that's had more than right now, but is more unhappy and unsatisfied than right now. Friends, these simple 10 rules, 10 commandments... The happiness rules. These are the old paths. And the world is going to scream at you that they're irrelevant, that they don't matter. And I'm here to tell you just the opposite. They are relevant, more relevant than anything else on the planet. And they do matter. They've been around from the beginning. And what did Jeremiah say? Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. And then you'll find rest for your souls. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, what is it? Rest for your souls. This is one of my favorite quotations. I don't know that I was aware of it until it was at uh, Doris's late husband's funeral. But this is something that he would quote to the kids often, right? Those who in everything make God first and last and best are the happiest people in the world. The world is constantly saying, if you want to be happy, if you want to be happy, do this, go here, do that, have this. But that's not what this says. Those who in everything make God first and last and best are the happiest people in the world. I'm convinced we need more young people and old people who will make a covenant to follow the Lord, to keep all his commandments with all their hearts and all their souls in the midst of a secular society. And not only that, but to compel others around them in their sphere of influence to do the same. Jesus said it in Matthew six thirty three. but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. If it's in your best interest, if it will truly make you happy, give you a plan and a purpose for your life, you'll have it. Just seek me first. So to our young people and to all of us, my appeal is quite simple. Will you, will I make a covenant to follow the Lord, to keep not one or two or three, not nine, but all, of his commandments, with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, and compel others to do the same. The culture is not in our favor, but by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe like Josiah, we too can go against the grain to courageously stand for the right, though the heavens fall to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust that when we do that, we too will be the happiest people 
and the world. So if anybody ever asks, are you old school? My answer is absolutely. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning, in the quietness of our own hearts, we want to covenant with you that your grace, that your Holy Spirit will empower and enable us to keep all your commandments. That we will seek after this with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. And Lord, help us to compel others and influence others around us to do the same. For we know that when we make you first and last and best, we will be the happiest people in the world. May that be said of us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.